chapter 2. spending our time in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Before we get started, though, uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the opportunity that we can open your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending your son as the superior sacrifice. I pray today the sin of the world. I pray that you help us this morning as we consider Jesus, that we will think about and be reminded of his supremacy. And Lord, I pray that you will help us to recognize his supremacy over all things and draw us to worship. In your name I pray, amen. In order to truly understand Chapter 2, verses 5 and following, we're going to be spending the next few weeks in chapter 2, but in 5 through 9 especially, we need to grapple with its setting in the text. If we don't get its setting in the text correctly, we'll miss the whole point. If you remember when we first started studying Hebrews, one of the things I said way back in the introductory materials, and I said it pretty much every week since then, is this. It is that the book of Hebrews presents great and amazing and deep theology with regard to Jesus Christ, the superiority, the supremacy of Jesus. And it's very important that we see that, and we have already in chapter 1, and we will continue to see that all the way through to the end of the book of Hebrews. However, one of the things that is interesting and is oftentimes somewhat ignored in the book of Hebrews is that the primary emphasis of Hebrews is not the theology, although it is very, very emphasized, but the exhortation of Hebrews is so important that we see. The, the theological section of Hebrews are important, but outside of the, of the exhortation, what we have is, in effect, we have a theological treatise that doesn't connect with our lives. But the whole ru- point of the rest of Hebrews is that he tells us the truth so that we can see the truth connecting with our lives in the exhortations of the Scriptures. So we must not ignore the exhortations, or we must not minimize the exhortations of the book of Hebrews. At the same time, if we we just camp on the exhortations of Hebrews and somewhat ignore or minimize the theology, we end up, as we've said every week, we end up being good legalists. We don't want to do that either. We want to see the theology, but we need to see the theology in light of the exhortation. And in reality, unlike many places in the Scriptures, The exhortation brings light to the theology. That doesn't mean that the the exhortation comes before or more primarily than the the theology or the indicatives, the statements of reality. They don't. We need to remember that the statements of reality bring purpose and everything else to the exhortation or the commands. That being said, we just last week spent our time in an exhortation section. We will not leave it today, although we are going to have a lot of theology in our discussion today. But the theology, again, serves the purpose of bringing us to the exhortation. The theology brings us to the point of saying, so what? Or what difference does that make in our lives? What, how should we respond to the truth? How should we respond to the truth of who Jesus is? And so we're going to today see the theology and the and the um, exhortation intertwined. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, before we get into the discussion of 5 through 9. So starting in chapter 2, verse 1, if you could follow along, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to the angels, not to angels, that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, 
What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower, for, I'm sorry, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And that's where we're going to stop today. We have one little glitch close to the end where uh, it's somewhat controversial. I hope that if we have time, I'll explain that to you. If not, then we'll figure it out later on. Um, but what we have here, first of all, is a quote in uh, uh, in this passage comes from Psalm chapter 8. It's verse, uh, middle of verse 6 through verse 8. It comes out of uh, Psalm chapter 8. We'll reference that in a little bit. But let me just say this real quickly. Uh, two things real quickly before we actually get into the text. You'll notice that it starts out with the word for in verse 5. And the reason why he starts with the, verse, the, the word for in verse 5 is because he's referencing and he wants the reader to reference what he already covered. Now, not just one through four, though. When he says four, it was not to angels. He wants you to reference all the way back to chapter one, verse one, and following all the way through to chapter two, verse four. What he's saying in the beginning of verse five is, I want to remind you that we talked about something really important in chapter one. And we talked about something else that's really important in chapter two, verses one through four. What did he talk about that was so important? Well, in chapter one, he talks about the, the supremacy or superiority of Jesus over two different, uh, well, one group, one person and one group of people, or group of persons. Let me put it that way. So the first person he said Jesus was superior to was who? The prophets, right? So it's people, group of people, prophets. Number two, group, I use persons very specifically because they are persons, they have personhood. But the second group that he was superior to or has supremacy to is who? The angels. So he's supreme over the angels, supreme over the prophets. Later on, he's going to talk about it. He's supreme over Moses as well. So, and just a reminder, what we said was, if he is supreme over the prophets and if he's supreme over the angels, how much more supreme or superior is he to whatever we hold dear? And that's the applicational import of chapter 1. How much more supreme, how much more superior is he over whatever we hold dear and whatever we hold important? And the writer of Hebrews wants us to wrestle with that as we consider our own lives and our own direction in life, our own focus, our own purpose, our own value system. He wants us to wrestle with the supremacy and the superiority of Jesus. That brings us to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When he says, again, I just read it, but he says, therefore, this is the exhortation section, the first exhortation section, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to it, to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. I want to repeat yesterday, last week's message, but I want you to remember that what he, or two weeks ago, message, I mean, you spoke this last, that's right, I spoke last week, Ugh, it's all blending together, you spoke two weeks ago. In light of chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews says we must pay much closer attention. No matter how close attention we pay, we must, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard or what's going to happen is we are going to, by necessity, drift away from it. And so the warning and the exhortation is to pay much closer attention. He goes on in verse 2, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience receives a just retribution, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And the point was when you look at the Old Testament, you see how no one escaped. If they neglected so great a salvation, no one escaped. Why do we think that we will escape today if we neglect how great the salvation is by this supreme Christ? And the way we neglect, what we talked about last week, the way we neglect is when we don't see Christ as supreme. We don't 
treasure Christ as supreme over everything. We are by necessity neglecting it if we do not and drifting away. That moves us down into verse 5, and he goes back to his discussion from chapter 1 with regard to angels. He's not done with the whole discussion of angels yet. And so he says in verse 5, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. The world, in other words, was not subjected, not placed under the authority of angels, but quite to the contrary, it would be unacceptable, uh, unacceptable for God the Father to do that because the angels are not, according to chapter 1, what? Supreme. The angels are not supreme, so it would be unacceptable for God to place the world under the subjection of something that wasn't supreme. So it says, the writer of Hebrews says, for it is not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking, our lives, all the existence that we know, he didn't place it all under the subjection of the angels, quite to the contrary. And then he moves to uh, Psalm chapter 8 and puts a new spin on Psalm chapter 8. Now, it's not a new spin, it's just that in Psalm chapter 8 it's kind of hidden. It's revealed in Hebrews chapter 2. It has been testified el uh, somewhere, and it is Psalm chapter 8, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little, uh, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with, on, with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. I want to just speak a little bit on the passage before we get into uh, the uh, explanation of the writer of Hebrews here. But first of all, let me just say this. The writer of Hebrews does some things that are very interesting and, and different than most people who have written books of the New Testament. Everywhere you read in the New Testament, oh, the Old Testament is quoted. Uh, just about every, every book of the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, and rightfully so. Many times in the Old Testament, or I'm sorry, in the New Testament books, the authors will make a statement based on commentating on what Jesus did or said in, in the Gospels, and then they will use the Old Testament as proof text for it to show the connection between the Old and New Testament in what Jesus said. The writer of Hebrews does, oftentimes does something very different, and we're going to see this again and again. What the writer of Hebrews does is he does not use the Old Testament as proof text. He uses the Old Testament as the primary text or the primary point. Not to prove a point, but to be the point. Make sense? And he, that's exactly what he's doing here. He's not using the Old Testament to prove his point, he's presenting the Old Testament as the point. And then he's going to prove it in his commentating on it. So he, he addresses Psalm chapter 8 here, and he starts it out in verse, I believe, verse 4 of Psalm chapter 8. And he says, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Now what he's referencing in, in this verse, the opening salvo of Psalm chapter 8, is not Jesus Christ in Psalm chapter 8, but it's you and I. And we see that in Psalm chapter 8 as well. That makes sense. But in Psalm chapter 8 and here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6, the opening statement of Psalm 8, he says, what is man that you are what? That you what? Are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him. It, the, the text demands that the reader asks the question. Because it is a question. It's two questions. What the writer of Hebrews and the writer of Psalms wants the reader to do is ask these two questions. Who are you? That's the question. It's a very important question. In light of what the writer of Hebrews is trying to accomplish. Very important question. Who are you? Who is man that God will be mindful of him? Now, the second phrase can get kind of confusing because he uses the word son of man. And sometimes in the New Testament, son of man refers to Christ. I don't think it does here. Now, the next verse will. But who are you is the question. And be careful how you answer it. Because 
Psalms and the writer of Hebrews gives one more piece of information here to help you with answering it. Because if we just leave ourselves with the first part of the question, who are you, who is man, it's easy to get all the wrong answers. Well, I'm Steve. My last name is Hobbs. I'm a white male. I live in America. I'm healthy. I'm a pastor. These are the kind of easy questions, right? Easy answers, aren't they? I'm married to Ruth. I live in Birdsboro. I've got my master's degree. I've done a little bit of doctoral work. These are easy answers, aren't they? They're not the answer. You see, because the question isn't completed yet. The question is, who is man that you, God the Father, is mindful of? So the question that's being asked is this. Who are you that God would give any care at all about you? That's the question. Very important question to ask. And boy, I'll tell you what, it's imperative we answer it right. We must answer it correctly. Who are you that God is at all mindful of you? Or to ask it a different way, who are you that God would have, or that you, I'm sorry, who or son of man that you care for him, that God would care for you? Who are you that God would be mindful of you? Who are you that God would even care? Now, let me just help you think about it for a second. I don't know how many of you have ever seen Men in Black, the movie. Anybody seen Men in Black? Thank you. My wife has, too. A few of you have. Now you have? Okay. At the end of the movie, Men in Black is about uh, aliens. Don't ask me the name of the people in the movie because I can't answer the question. Um, I see a couple of you guys going, well, so-and-so, and so I don't care. Um, <laughs> at the very end of the movie, and you think it's over, but it's not yet. I think it's even the credits have run. And at the end of the movie... Suddenly, it shows the two people, the two stars. And then it begins to fade back. And slowly but surely, you can't see them anymore. But you can see the city. And then it keeps moving back beyond that. And now you can see the globe. And then it keeps moving beyond that. And you can see the galaxy. And then you move beyond that. And it's just like stars everywhere, and you can't even pick it out anymore. You can't even pick the earth out anymore. And then, lo and behold, it moves even beyond that, and does anyone remember what happens next? What's that? The world's in a dog collar, but, yeah, that galaxy, but in that, in that scene, that's not the case. It keeps pulling back and pulling back and pulling back, and eventually it ends up being that there's some alien somewhere holding a marble, and he's playing marbles with, with our world. Okay, and suddenly you feel really, what, small and insignificant and irrelevant. I remember when I saw the end of that movie and saw that scene where the alien starts playing marbles with what was my world, my universe, my existence. I thought to myself, yeah, that's a pretty good demonstration of how insignificant I really am. If you even just don't leave the earth, how insignificant are you? And you think about it, start processing it through. Now think about an infinite God. Infinitely all-knowing. Infinitely all-powerful God. Who are you? That God would be mindful of you? Who are you that God would care at all about you? And the answer is obvious now, isn't it? See, the initial question, who is man, comes up with all the wrong answers. But when you add the second part of the question in, suddenly we all know what the answer really is. The answer is, who is man that you are mindful of him? 
man's nothing. I'm nothing. Who is the man that you care for him? Nothing. And then we start thinking about what the scriptures have to say, right? Our lives are what? A vapor. We're like grass that flourishes today and tomorrow fades away. Isn't that right? And some of us here are really fading quick. I'm just kidding. That question is very important, and the answer is equally important, because if you don't answer it correctly, then the rest of it is meaningless. See, if we answer it wrongly, then suddenly we start thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. But it's really important because the goal of Hebrews is that we not just theologically see the, uh, the supremacy of Jesus, but that we recognize our desperation for him. That, our, that we recognize our desperate need. And the only way we're going to recognize our desperate need and be drawn to worship is if we recognize who we are and who he is. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is trying to do. Identify who Jesus is and identify who we are. And to be able to think rightly about both of those. See, in our world today, if you come along and say, you know what, we're nothing. Everybody say, oh, come on, self-esteem. That says, no, it's about Christ. We find our meaning, our purpose, and our, our even reason for existence in him. Because if we're not in him, then we might as well do what? Eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. Our hope is in him. And in order to have hope in him, though, we need to see him for who he really is. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Verse 70 makes a shift. The writer of Hebrews and the writer of, of Psalms makes a shift. We realize as we look at Hebrews, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor. Now, obviously, 7 is past. What, what, what happens in verse 7 one short little verse is packed with everything from his incarnation, that is his birth, all the way to his resurrection and, in fact, his ascension. And it includes also his time today, sitting on the throne. You've, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. He became man. Humbled himself to the point of death. Philippians chapter 2. The writer of Hebrews wants us to be reminded of this. And, of course, Philippians, uh, Hebrew, uh, Philippians chapter 2, of course, he, he humbled himself to the point of death, and then he was exalted. Brings us to the end of verse 8. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Now, I want to pause on the statement because the second half of, of 8 is referring to his resurrection and continuing. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Now, the reason I want to pause on that is because it if we're going to be faithful to Hebrews, we must take the end of verse 7 and drag it back into chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So here's what I want to do with verse 7, the end of verse 7, in light of chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Verse 3 says this, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Let me just help you think through something here. God the Father did what? In light of his death and resurrection, Christ's death and resurrection, actually his humbling, becoming man, and then his death and resurrection, he crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 3 again, how should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If I may fold the second half of verse 7 into verse 3, let me just lay it out this way. If you wonder, am I neglecting his sal this great salvation I've received? Am I neglecting it? We need to ask ourselves, how does God the Father not neglect it? God the Father does what? He crowns and he crowned and continues to crown him with what? Glory and honor. God the Father glorifies the Son, as it says, crowns him with glory, and gives him honor. He stays and remains in a place of honor. So I would argue verse 3, going back to the exhortation, 
we must say, we must drag the end of eight, uh, 7 down to verse 3 and ask ourselves, am I one who recognizes Christ's supremacy? Do I recognize Christ's supremacy over angels? Do I recognize Christ's supremacy and, 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 and acknowledge Christ's supremacy over the prophets? Do I acknowledge, most importantly, Christ's supremacy over all the things I hold dear? Because remember we said that the prophets and the angels are examples. The examples that they, that they were dealing with back then, primarily, being Jews. Do I crown him, do I re- maybe better place, better stated, do I recognize in my life, in the substance of my life, in the elements of my life, do I, am I characteristically and in growing ways recognizing what God has done and said about Jesus. He crowned him with glory and honor. Does Jesus, in my life, in the substance of my life, all the various substances of my life, do I find Jesus crowned with glory? Is he honored in the things of my life? Is he crowned with glory in the things that make up my life? Very important questions, aren't they? Crucial questions. You may ask yourself, well, how is that, what does that look like? I'm glad you asked the question. We know, by the way, what that looks like. We really do. If I were to come along, let's say I was a multimillionaire. If I were to come along and come up to one of you and say, hey, listen, I want to buy you a nice house. And it's going to be brand new. I'm going to build it for you. I'm going to buy you a car. And it's not going to be a used car. It's going to be a brand new car. It's not going to be a, it's not going to be a, what's a cheap junk car today? A Kia. It's not going to be a Kia. It's going to be a really, really nice, brand new car. And by the way, I'm going to take care of all the repairs down the road for the house, the car. Everything's going to be taken care of. You're set for life. You move in. You you, you get comfortable. You're driving your nice new car. You invite people over, and you have a party at your house. You think you'd invite me? You think? I think you would. If you don't, do you think that maybe something's wrong? Do you think that maybe you're not recognizing the honor, the glory, and where it's supposed to go? Do you think maybe you're trying to rob the glory and honor from me? Wouldn't that be right? And, and by the way, just having me over isn't enough, is it? Right? Do you think that maybe during the course of the party, as everybody's having a big old time, and this isn't housewarming, you've been in for a year. Housewarming is easy. You've been in for a year or two. Do you think maybe when somebody comes into the house and says, my goodness, what an amazing house. This is beautiful. Do you think maybe it would be appropriate for you to say, yeah, Steve gave it to me. Would that be appropriate? And to not say that, do you think maybe you're stealing glory and honor that belongs somewhere else? Right? Does that make sense? And I'm just using the house as an example. And the car, same thing. Nice car. Yeah, Steve gave it to me. Why did he give it to you? Oh, there's a good question, right? He just wanted to. Out of his own good pleasure, he gave it to me. 
breathtaking, isn't it? So we all know what it means to give honor and glory, right? And if we don't do that, are we not neglecting something dramatic? And aren't we, in effect, drifting away from that person? Just to quote chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Aren't we drifting away? I didn't see any head shakes except for Ken. Aren't we then drifting away? Thank you, Ken. Of course we're drifting away. We're drifting away from the reality and we're taking glory and honor to ourselves that don't belong to you. You didn't earn the house, did you? Right? You didn't do it at all. You did nothing for it. And by the way, Steve also hired somebody to move you in. You didn't even have to move in. You had to do the hard work. He did it all. All to him I owe. Sound familiar? That's not scripture, it's a song, but you get the point. This is how the Father views Jesus. He crowned him with glory and honor. When we don't recognize that in the substance of our lives, in reality, what we are doing without even realizing it, we're falling into the trap of drifting away. And drifting, as we said last week, is something that happens when we don't even recognize it. We're drifting away. Why? Because we're neglecting it so greatly. It's a stunning salvation we've been given. We were lost, condemned to receive the wrath of God for eternity. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And with regard to Jesus, he made him for a little while lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection to his feet. And that last phrase, verse 8, is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 28, isn't it? The Great Commission. Right before the Great Commission, he says, all authority, all power has been given unto you. That's what Jesus did. To deny that or to ignore that or to not acknowledge that in the substance of our lives and all the things that make up our lives is to, by very definition, drift away and to neglect. And as he says, how shall we escape if we neglect the great salvation? So now what the writer of Hebrews is going to do, I just want to go through the text a little bit from Psalms real quickly before we get into what the writer of Hebrews actually wants to declare, which is not unlike what we just declared, but I just want to develop it from the Hebrew, Hebrew writer's perspective. He starts with verse 8. Now, putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. I want to camp on that one for a second. Jesus Christ, in other words, has absolute control. All authority, all power, Psalm 28, or sorry, Matthew 28, has been given unto Jesus. Everything was placed in subjection to Jesus. That means all things are under his control. All things. It means things that happen that are bad. It means things that happen that are good. It means things that seem to be a blessing. And it means things that seem to be a curse. It means relationships. It means possessions. It means the air we breathe. It means everything. Everything is under subjection to him. I think about that sometimes when I go kayaking. I really do. I flip upside down, my head's underwater, and I think about it sometimes when I'm hanging underwater, I'm thinking, yeah, air is subje under subjection to the Father. Even the air I breathe. And if I don't get back upright again, it's not because I failed in my role, ultimately. Ultimately, it's because all things are under his control. In his control, I wasn't supposed to have error. That's pretty radical thinking, isn't it? But it's true. It's very true. 
all things are under subjection to him. That means he left nothing outside his control. I hear people say things that are really an error about Jesus. When I talk about the supremacy of Jesus, we must get this. I hear people say all the time that, that things that are good that happen, it's because God did them. And they're, whether they realize or not, they're referencing Jesus. But when bad things happen, it's something else. That's not what the scriptures say. That's not at all what the scriptures say. God says that all things are in subjection to him. That is, he left nothing outside his control. There's nothing that happens in life that is Christ being passive. We are not deists. That God put it all in motion and he lets it go. They're not deists. God did not merely put it into motion. All things are under his, understand it this way, active control. He's an authority. Everything is in subjection to him. That's why, in, in, by the way, in Romans 8, 28, he can say, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, who are who are called according to his that doesn't mean it's going to be happy, happy, clappy, clappy. It means that he uses those things for a very important purpose, verse 29, to conform us to his image. So we have become more and more like Christ and less and less like our old father, Satan. So what he's after. This is the Christ, if you are a believer, this is the Christ who has saved you. We're talking about the supremacy of Jesus. What the writer of Hebrews wants you and I to do is to reflect on this, to consider this, to remember this, to dwell on this. When the events unfold in your life this afternoon, for many of you it'll be good things, for some of you it may be bad things. Starting point. Not, ah, this really stinks. Man, life would be good if only this didn't happen. Oh, if only my team would have won instead of lost. Or, if only the doctor hadn't called this afternoon and told me I had cancer and it's terminal. Bad stuff. One is like, who cares? The other one's really important, right? Starting point. Starting point. Ready? What the writer of Hebrews is arguing for is starting point when I get the phone call from the doctor that says cancer and it's terminal. Starting point is all things are in subjection to Jesus. That's what he's arguing for. That's a starting point for someone who's in Christ. That's a starting point for someone who has received Christ as their Savior. All things are in subjection to him. That means nothing is outside his control. Nothing. See, too often our starting point is what? This is bad and I don't want it. Isn't that where we start? This is, let me add one more part to that. The way we start is typically this. We may not verbalize it this way. This is bad for me. Right? That's the way we start it. I find oftentimes I say to people, would you rather have somebody else instead? kind of brings it a little bit to light, right? But more importantly, if Christ is our Savior and He's supreme over all things, and all things are in His control, and all things are in place in subjection under Him, one who loves you enough to come to this world and become a little lower than the angels, and suffer, and die, and take on the wrath of the Father, because of sin, because of your sin and mine. Would not the starting point be him? If all those things are true, then should we not be trusted for the stuff of our life? All things are under subjection to him. He's in control of all of them. Now, he goes on in verse 8, and he says this. At the present... 
we do not, do not yet see everything in subjection to him. With our eyes, there's still bad things that happen, right? Aren't there? We see them, we feel them, we experience them, we observe them. Just, what was it, yesterday, the day before, another bombing in London? Right? Hurricanes? Down in Florida and Texas? Right now, we observationally don't see it. Now, his argument isn't at the end of verse 8 that because we don't see it, it's not yet true. That's not his argument. His argument is simply we don't see it. Right? We don't see it. And I would remind you that, yes, oftentimes we don't see it. But I want to remind you, you are finite. And your sight is limited. Remember what 1 Corinthians 13 says? We see through a, like a hazy glass right now. It's opaque. You, can't, you, you can see there's something on the other side, but you really can't see clearly at this point. So right now, we, don't, we can't necessarily see it. We can't really observe it oftentimes. Sometimes we can. We don't always see it observationally, but that doesn't make it not true because at the end of the day, it's not about you being an authority of what is right and what is wrong. You see, that's the point. What is man that you are, or who is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? It doesn't begin with you. It doesn't end with you. It doesn't begin with me. It doesn't end with me. So even if we can't see it, doesn't change anything. What matters is what God has declared. And what has he declared? He's crowned him with glory and honor. And he's put everything in subjection under his feet. Whether you see it or not. Whether you observe it or not. Let me just pause for just a second and ask you to do something for me. I want you to think back on your life. Some of you haven't been alive very long. Some of you have been alive for a real long time. Linda's over here laughing. I wasn't referring to you, Linda. <laughs> what's, what's that? Yeah, exactly. <coughs> I want you to think back on your life. Has anything ever happened in your life that you didn't observe being under subjection to Christ? Anything? A lot of things, right? But when you think back on your life, can you think of some things after the fact, maybe a year after, two years after, three years after, you look back and you say, wow, that thing that I thought was so horrible, what a blessing. God has done great things. God has done something Sometimes we don't see it. In fact, many times we don't see it. It doesn't change the fact. God's at work. You may see some things yet that you still don't see the reason for. And that's okay. Because you're not the starting point nor the ending point. You're not the authority on these things because you're not the one that everything's under subjection to. He is. The one that we can entrust. The one that we can rely on. The one that we can depend upon because he doesn't change. The one that, that is the same yesterday, today, and forever is the one that we can depend on because all things are su under subjection to Christ. So we don't see it yet. Sometimes we do, and that's a real blessing. But we don't always see it. One day we will. And one day it will be brought to complete fruition where everything evidentially evidence will be made absolutely clear. Today's not that day. Today's the day yet when we don't see, which is why faith is so important. Trusting the one who has come. The one who has declared. So he says at the end of verse 8, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside, uh, outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, 
The next few words, the beginning of verse 9, are so important. But we see Jesus, or we see him. Very important phrase before we get into the whole sentence. But we see him. We don't see how everything is under subjection. But one thing we do see, it's a Christian. Because we have been recipients of grace, and our recipients of grace is through him. You see, if Christ is superior to all these other things, to everything, then he must be because everything is under subjection. So he must be superior to all these. If Christ is superior to everything, the only thing that's essential, the only thing that is essential is that we see Him. Now, when, we say, when I say we see Him, the idea is, again, that we remember, that we dwell on, that we consider, that we wrestle with, that we learn, that we fellowship with Him. But we see Him. May not see how the de- the, what the demonstration is of his su- superiority, but we see him, and the writer goes on to say, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Crowned, the idea is we don't see him made a little lower because that happened in the past. But we know according to the scriptural record, we, saw, we see him in the scriptural record being made a little lower than the angels. But in his resurrection and ascension, We see him today crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What do we see about Jesus today? When we see Jesus, we see him with the eyes of faith. We see him crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he's made a little We see him crowned with glory and honor because he suffered, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He died for me. He died for you. He died for all those who will believe. As a result of that, then Philippians chapter 2, he's crowned with glory and honor. But the point of the text is not that it actually happened, although it did. The point of the text is not that. It is instead, we see him this way. That's what we see. In the nooks and crannies of our lives, we see him crowned with glory and honor. That's why I brought verse uh, um, uh, verse 7 back to verse 3. Christians see him glory and honor, crown with glory and honor. He doesn't say here, it's important, words are important, he doesn't say here we must see him crown with glory and honor. That's not what he says. He says what? We do. We don't see that all things being subjected to him right now because we see finitely, but the one thing we do is we see him crowned with glory and honor. Why is that? Because that's who he is. We see him crowned with glory and honor because he is crowned with glory and honor by the Father. Now, hidden within the indicative here is obviously a call to very much do so, to pursue seeing him that way. So I would like to pause on that and challenge us with it. When we think of the substance of our lives, we inevitably, all through our days, place value on things. We can't help it. If I place no value on something, I don't pursue it, right? For example, simple, for an example, I find no value in cottage cheese. I don't like cottage cheese. To me, it's just curdled milk, and it's disgusting. My wife makes this thing called orange jello salad. Some of you have had it, and some of you devour it every meal that we have a church meal. Everybody I know loves my wife's orange jello salad. This is not an advertisement. 
I get nothing out of this. Yeah, exactly. Every time I look at it, you know what I see? Curdled milk. That's what I see. It's like, why would anybody eat curdled milk? It's disgusting. Little balls of grossness. It falls in my books. It falls in the same category as as uh, what's that pudding? Um, tapioca pudding. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I will. I I call tapioca pudding baby vomit. That's a whole other issue. Yeah. Anyway, be that as it may. Sorry, I digress. I find no value in either of those two. I just don't. So you know what? The only time I ever buy it, the only time I ever buy cottage cheese is when my wife says, while you're at the store, could you please get some, some cottage cheese because I need to make some orange jello salad. Or for my mom, because my mom loves it as well. I'm like, okay, I'll get it. Whatever. To me, it looks the same in the fridge the day I put it in as it looked like a year later. Gross. The only difference is one has mold, one doesn't. One has exposed itself, the other one hasn't. In, other case, in any case, my point is I find no value in it, so therefore, when I walk down the aisle of the grocery store, if Ruth didn't tell me to pick some up, guess what I do? I keep on walking. I don't even look at it. I don't acknowledge it. I look at people who are grabbing it. And I'm like, you guys are weird. I just keep on walking. There's certain things I find some value in. There's certain things I find incredible value in. In all cases, it is defined or demonstrated by my wife and the way I live. Doesn't it? It really is. My life defines my values. It displays my values for the world to see, for me to see, for my wife to see, for my mom to see, for you to see. It does. There's something really weird there. There's only one crowned with glory and honor. There's only one. Out of all the substance of eternity, there's only one. Crown glory and honor. And that's Jesus Christ. And that's because he suffered death for you. For me. He absorbed the wrath of God for you. Why? boggles your mind, doesn't it? Because here's man, the image of God. And yet he did. And yet he did. There's something really weird and strange. About that truth. And people who claim to be believers, Christians, who don't see this Jesus talking about this morning. There's something really wrong about people that they could claim to be believers, but they don't see this as evidenced by lives, by e as evidenced by priorities, as evidenced by direction, by emphasis, by pursuit. Nothing wrong with having a job. Nothing wrong with having a nice car, a nice house. Nothing wrong with having a nice family. Nothing wrong with having a nice fill-in-the-blank. I don't care. Whatever. Nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. The scriptures don't prohibit any of that. There's something really wrong about what he meant. If he took one of the most important phrases in the entire section of the beginning of verse 9 of what we see here. And the idea of we see him is this. It is 
when I look at my house and I look at my car and I look at my wife and my husband and my children and I look at my job or I look at my, my retirement income and I look at my vacation and I look at my plans and I look at my health and I look at my fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is, I'm looking at it through the lens that starts with Jesus and remains with Jesus. That's what, that's what he's arguing here. That's what the exhortation is all about in verses 1 through 4. There's something really wrong if we're neglecting our, this great salvation when we are thankful that we were justified, we were saved in times past, but today it's just life. It's just living life. It's just going from bed to bed. As in, I went to bed last night, I'm going to go to bed again tonight. And tomorrow morning I get up and go to job, and tomorrow, tom- or today I got up, well, tomorrow morning I go to job, and then Tuesday morning I go to job again. And this afternoon I'm going to go to lunch, and then tonight I'm going to go to dinner. And tomorrow morning I go to breakfast, and then lunch I'm going to go to lunch, and dinner time I'm going to go to dinner again. And, and that's life. Something really gross about that. Because in all that, we don't see him. And the test is we see him when we see him crowned with glory and honor. Not just by the Father, but that we're in agreement with the Father. And so in our lives, we are acknowledging not just Jesus, but we're acknowledging him with glory honor. That is, we glory in him and we honor him. That's what we do. If we see him and we glory and honor, it's demonstrated in our lives. And this is the call of Hebrews. Steps two, five, and nine. Because if that's not true in our lives, how should we neglect? How should we go through? How should we escape if we neglect the glory of God? And we will have to. How should we neglect? How should we escape? All things are in subjection to Jesus. So if we're treating things in our lives as not under subjection to Jesus, that means we are in rebellion. And that's wrong. So what's the hope in the passage? The hope in the passage is this. Jesus has subjected all things in his life. Or the Father has anyway. All things are He is crowned with glory and honor. He is in control of all things as the one who loves you and cares about you more than anyone else ever will. Not even your family. The call to Scripture is for you and I, as we will see what we have heard and as we will hear more and more today, is to repent of that. Or since it's very tightly woven into the Old Testament that we repent and believe in the Son of God. The one who has all things in subjection. And you know what? When we do, the most amazing thing happens because we're born again. And we see once again that all things are subjected to him. And we love the repented last week. That's good. But it's time for us to repent again as we regularly have to do and have the blessing because the one who loves you who is nobody who 
help us. I don't presume to speak for every one of us here. I only presume to speak for me. But knowing the human dilemma, what I say probably, what I say probably is applicable across the board. This week we have thrown a party. thrown a party and you weren't acknowledged. Your glory and honor were not given. And for most of us, that party lasted a week. And so, Lord, I pray for your forgiveness. Thank you.